Right, greetings everybody. It's a blessing for me to come to you today. We're going to talk about the love of God, the wisdom of God, and we're just going to continue along the lines that we were talking about in the last two or three weeks. But we're going to also look at this wisdom practically applied into our lives. So many times we live lives where we try to justify ourselves in the sense of looking at our own innocence and trying to find and justify what we do, be it just or not, meaning that be it that you've done good or bad. Uh, Most of us, we try to do as good as possible, and we look at our lives, and we look at the good that we've done. But we're going to look at the wisdom of God and the life of a person that is found innocent by his own works. In other words, if you've done good, uh, and we now apply the wisdom of God to that, uh, how does that look, and how did Paul deal with that? We're going to have a look at 1 Corinthians 13, and the background of that is that Paul went and he planted a church in Corinth. He lived there for a year and a half, moved away. After that, went back to Jerusalem and so forth. You can read all of this in Acts uh, chapter 18. And then another guy came in there, Apollos. Apollos was, I would guess, a more charismatic speaker than what Paul was. And Peter also went there, and other apostles came in, and they preached there. And all of a sudden, there was this uh, competition between preachers, uh, and they started to say, well, I'm of Paul. The other one said, I'm of Apollos. And they started to find their identity in Uh, or under who they basically received Jesus. And they started to look at, um, you know, and division started to get into the church. And what we're going to look at is the practical application uh, or the real-life experience of the grace message, the gospel of grace, which is free, which is a life that's not born from your own works, but is born from a revelation of truth, by the power of the resurrection, and how Paul applied it in that area. Then we're going to look and we're going to take that and we're going to bring it into what it means for us today. Because if it is not practical and doesn't mean anything to us today, if it's not practical, and I want to just say this, (laughs) I remember when I was in Bible school, uh, a lot of people said, we want practical messages, and the practical message was basically, uh, we don't want to understand theology, just tell me what to do, Uh, and it becomes legalistic. So I want to tell you this, we've been preaching the grace message for many years, we're not getting into legalism, we're not getting into what you must do at all. We're looking and we're going to look at what Jesus has done and how what he's done manifests in us by his doing and what we can expect from that and how uh, that life, a life that he brings forth in you looks. That's what we're going to uh, talk about. So when I talk about practical Christianity, I am not talking about what you must do again to try and put a smile on God's face or a smile on your own face. Uh, or wherein you can try and clear your conscience through your own works. That is not what we're talking about. That is not what it is, uh, what it is about. We, we, we're looking at, when we talk about practical Christianity, my definition of practical Christianity is the effect of what God has done in your life, onto your life, by Him fulfilling His promise as you simply sit back, relax, 
believe upon him and have an open heart whereby he brings forth life in you. That is what we are talking about. So don't be afraid when I talk about practical Christianity. Most of the time, in uh, I mean, if we look at the uh, uh, people in the Israelites, uh, God wanted to speak to them. And then they said to Moses, well, tell God what we must do. They wanted practical Christianity. You tell me if you want, back then wouldn't be practical Christianity because there would not have been a Christianity at all by then in the way we know it now. But they wanted practical religion. We, You tell us what we must do, we do it, then you bless us. But that is not how the gospel works. The gospel is that God made a promise before the world began where he promised what he is going to do and all that we do is believe and God brings forth. That, that, is, that is what we are uh, going to look at. Now, uh, let's get back to Psalm 118 and I'm going to just read the first verse and then I'm just going to touch on verse 13 and then get to the last verse there of Psalm 118. I'll spare you Psalm 119. Okay, um, Psalm 118 says, Give thanks to the Lord. Now remember, this is a prayer that Jesus would pray. And we've established that in the two previous sessions because in verse 22 it says, In this psalm, the stone the builders rejected has become the uh, cornerstone. And then we read in Acts 4.11 that uh, Peter preached that as the rejection of the cornerstone as the crucifixion. And then he, he preached the acceptance of the cornerstone or the becoming of the cornerstone. He preached as the resurrection. Now, Jesus also quoted this in Luke 20 as well as in Matthew 21. So Jesus acknowledged that this passage was something that he read as a truth about himself. So when we read this, we can read right into the relationship that Jesus Christ had with the Father. Do you know that Jesus believed in God? We in, in Christianity want to make a big focus of when Jesus was on earth as a human, as him being God. I'm not saying that Jesus is not God, but I think when we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of that, the idea of the writers is not to try and point out that Jesus, while when he was born from Mary, was God, because there's too much written about how he prays to God, how he asks of God, how he wants salvation from God, how he walks in weakness and needs strength, and all those kind of things. So it's a lot to talk about the Trinity that we can still discuss, but I want you to know that when you you read Psalm 118, you reading it from the perspective of Jesus being the Son of Man, believing in God. And this is what he says. Jesus says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. So Jesus would say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Now, what was the love that Jesus was talking about that he says it endures forever? There's an uh, eternality, if there's such a word. There's, there's something very eternal about the love of God. It is not just that God's love is something that he feels in his heart. What he's basically saying is, is that the love that God would express towards you is something that is eternal. Let's say I uh, love my uh, uh, son and I decide 
I'm going to buy him a watch. If I go down to, and, and I do it in all my love, I do it for him. And I go down to the local China shop here where you can buy it for a, a, a 10 rand. You can buy a watch. Then I would love my son and I would give him the watch. But the watch or the love, my love, would only have endured for a week. Because then the watch breaks. But if I go and I say I love him and it is within my financial means to buy him a Rolex, then we would say maybe the love endures for 50 years. But the love that God has (laughs) towards us, the expression of what he has, and when he loves us, his action, what is in his heart is the the gushing forth of his innermost being towards us is of such a sort that what he gives us endures forever. Isn't that amazing? We in this world are so happy. You know, somebody gave me, let's say again, if you you buy somebody a car and you buy him an old broken down car, you can see that's an expression of love and the love endures for a certain time. But if they buy you Uh, the most reliable car, then you would say that love that he has, it's not that the person doesn't have love anymore, but the action of love endures for longer. But what if you can have something from God that can endure forever? Now, the only thing that can ever endure forever is God himself. There's nothing greater, nothing that can endure forever. The only one and the only thing that is, if we can use the word thing, that is from everlasting to everlasting is God himself. So I would use the freedom to read this in such a way. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for he gives himself to you. We can read it in uh, Genesis 15. Um, let us do that. I don't know how this translation says it. Let's take a chance. Otherwise, I'll quickly open the uh, um, King James. This is Abraham being stressed out. God speaking to him. He says here, After all these words, the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. He says, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am sh- your shield and your very great reward. So what was the reward or the love that God gave Abraham? He said, I am your reward. So the reward of believing in God, the reward of not trying to bring forth life by your own power, but resting in God, the reward of that is God. He is the reward. So what does it mean if God is our reward? How does that look? Now, the way you can see uh, how you can be rewarded with God, practically seen in everyday life, was Jesus. He was born of a woman. He was drinking from his mother's breast. Why? If he didn't drink from his mother's breast, he would die. <laughs> he needs milk. He needs food. He needs shelter. He's a, he's a child. He's, he, he, he's, he is the one that the Father brought forth uh, in the form of a human being were the weaknesses of a human being. And what did this Jesus do? He believed in God the Father. And as he believed in the Father, he, he was rewarded 
with what was the reward bodily i'm talking about his body what was the reward he was raised from the dead so that the fullness of the godhead indwells jesus in bodily form so he was rewarded with god himself in his flesh so when the bible says here give thanks to the lord for his good his love endures forever this psalm ends the way it started it says in the end again give thanks to the lord for his good for his love endures forever and the whole psalm is on especially if you go to verse 13 how jesus was pushed by the 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 romans and by the jews how they wanted him to fall but god helped him god raised him from the dead um, and god became his salvation saving jesus from the grave that is what took place and then appointed as i've said this every sunday this jesus who is now god fully in the flesh (laughs) as the resurrected christ as god over us ruler over sin and death having no shortcoming loving us in bringing the fullness of god to us bodily that is the love of god you can say badly i don't agree with that well just read john 3 16 my friend uh john 3 16 says for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son begotten means raised from the dead son so that we will not perish but live forever (laughs) so what is the love of god god so loved the world that he granted who he is himself and the fullness of his essence to us as a free gift and what god also did which is so beautiful he closed any other access he said there's no access unto this life other than god fulfilling his promise that means you cannot have life this life of god by the success of your business neither can you have it or have access to the emotion that comes or that is carried in the heart of god by um what other people think about you or what your children think about you or how they treat you or how you treat them or anything you do the only access to this which we're talking about is via god through god by god because of god when god that's the only way how beautiful is that because if you truly believe that you'll find your rest there'll be a rest in your heart that is greater than what you could ever have imagined i want to quickly now turn to uh first corinthians 13 and i want to just see how paul quoted this verse paul also talked about the love of god that uh, never you know that is eternal listen to this he says love is patient love is kind this is now 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, does not envy, doesn't boast, is not proud, does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always preserves, In other words, if God is love, God always protects, 
God always trusts. God always has hope. Why would God have hope? Because he knows his ability, where he can bring forth in your life what needs to be brought forth in your life. It's beautiful when God has hope. When you lose hope, I want to tell you God still has hope. Because many times when we lose hope is when we see that we don't see how it's going to work out by our own power. That's why we lose hope. But God never brings your ability into the equation. It's not part of his calculation at all. Okay, so now listen to this. It always hopes, always uh, 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 perseveres. Love never fails. That word fail there means to cease to exist or to end, to come to an end. And other words for that is to die. He says, but where there be prophecies, they will cease. Now, the way I see this is not that prophecy is a bad thing. I'm just thinking that what he's saying here is that only by the love of God can we have eternal life. Only by the love of God can we have eternal joy. But prophecies, they will cease now, I know that there, uh, and many uh, theologians has pro- has interpret this as there will not be a day when we don't have to prophesy anymore or there'll be a day when there will be not the gifts of knowledge or the gift of prophecy or all those kind of things. But the way I see it is that um, a prophecy, if we study that whole thing out, I don't want to study 1 Corinthians 13 now. I'm going to talk about other things. But prophecy can leave you lacking. I've seen it in my life. You can go through a difficult time. Somebody gives you a scripture. You see that scripture comes and it is truly supernatural. It's truly uh, something that comes from God. But you find that that prophetic word, that encouragement does last for maybe a week or a month. And as the situation around you pushes in on you, it's almost as if you need another word. Because that prophetic word does not possess the fact that somebody gives you a gift or, or, or the, the, the prophetic word or a scripture or all of that. Eternal life is not in that, somebody, that something supernaturally came to you and gave you a word. A word of knowledge, a word of wisdom cannot give you eternal joy. What brings joy, what lasts forever is the love of God. Which is what? Which is the giving of Jesus Christ, the life that's born from him, him fulfilling his promise. That's why the Bible says, when that which is perfect has come, that which is temporal will pass away. It talks about the perfect as God's love giving that which is eternal unto us. Now, with that said, we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to what he says in chapter 4 here. This is a very, very, very powerful scripture. He says, remember now, we're back now at Paul with the people that are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and that's the whole thing. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us. Remember, they regarded Paul and the apostles as, uh, you know, Paul is better than, uh, you know, this preacher. Peter is better than Paul. And they would say things like, you know what? Paul, yes, maybe he said Jesus appeared to him. But let me tell you something. I've been with Peter. That dude touched Jesus, man. He walked with Jesus for three years. So he's better. 
That's the kind of a thing that they were dealing with. Now, Paul, look at the practical application of the grace message here based on what Paul believes. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mystery of God um, and what is revealed. So what he's saying is, this is what I want you to know. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Because we cannot give you life. And this is the whole thing. I mean, uh, and I'm very grateful. I mean, I've greeted all of you that have slotted in here. I see new people as, as, uh, um, as slotted in the meantime after that I've greeted you guys. And I l I'm very grateful for the love that you've expressed towards me and my wife, the encouragement, the care, and all of that. And I'm sure you guys, many of you have expressed towards me the love that we show towards each other. But there's one thing that is true, and that is that I am simply just your servant. That is all. And I'm serving you with what gives life. I can never give you life. And you can remind me and Elena of the true life and so be our servants in sharing the love of God with us but at the end of the day it is about Jesus as the source of life and this is what Paul is saying here regard us simply as servants of this mystery that God has revealed now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful so he says uh, yes, um, God has given us this mystery to reveal, and it is that we should be faithful. We should preach that true message. Yes, we must be faithful. That, that is, he gives that. We should have good lives. Now listen to verse, uh, verse 3. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. So what he's saying is, yes, we, I am your servants, like me now sharing the gospel with you. It is expected of me to be faithful to the mystery and preaching the gospel and also to live a good life. He says, now listen to how Paul thinks about this practical application. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by a human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. So what he's saying is, is, listen, yes, it's expected of me to live good, but the good that I live towards you, I can't find life by that. That's what he's saying. <laughs> That's why he says, it's very little thing for me. If you are now saved, remember the context is Paul, Apollos, and the good preachers, and some say this preacher is better than that preacher and all of that. He says, yes, I must be faith, found faithful. Yes, I must be a good preacher. But it's a very little thing to me if you think I'm good or not. If you think I'm faithful or not, I don't care. Even if I have lived towards you and I've lived a good life towards you, which is expected of me, that is good. But it's a very small thing for me if you think that I've done that right or wrong. Because your opinion of me cannot give me life. Even if you say, I, Paul, you are the best preacher there is. 
I've had people say on my 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 uh, many of my YouTube videos say very good things about me, and then I think I'm grateful that this person uh, 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 takes the message. But I I am not vindicated by somebody saying Bertie, you're a modern day Paul, or Bertie, you are a this or you are a that. No, my life. I'm grateful that that a person would say that for this only reason is that I believe that he is taking and making use of the service that I am bringing him, which is to believe in the gospel. And that can be an acknowledgement of the gospel. But I cannot find life from that. If all the people at the, in the whole world have said I'm the best person there is, I think many times of these uh, movie stars and, and very famous singers and all of that, they're on the stage, they get praise, and they get everything, and then they go home and they close the door. And then they're still stuck with themselves. And that is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. He says, I, I don't care how you judge me. Then he go, even goes further, taking it now even outside of the parameters of the church. He takes it now to civil matters and civil courts. He says, I'm not e- I don't even care if I'm found innocent before a human court. That's what he says. Let me read it again. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. So what he's basically saying is this. is If a human judge in a human court finds me innocent, There's no life on the other side of his judgment because he himself is a mortal man dying and God has not given it and has not given access to eternal life by opinion of man. There's no life in that. So because Paul believes this, can you see how he lives free from the judgment that a church that he planted himself, that is turning this back on Paul, that he can continue to love them and continue to live in peace with them. If you go and read Second Corinthians 2, man, you realize that they have stabbed him in the back like you cannot believe. They've believed lies about him. They, they started to hate Paul because of bad messages so much that... I think they wouldn't have even thought twice to give him over to a human court to be judged. But Paul says, who I am and my life source cannot be formed by that. Now, for the, for the crux of what I want to say today, verse 4, he says, my conscience is clear. My conscience is clear, meaning that he himself says that I don't know of anything that I've done wrong. He himself. Let me just get it in the King James here. Uh, King James reads like this. For I know nothing by myself. Not in, other translation says, I'm innocent. I don't know if I've done some. I, I, I'm not aware of anything that I've done wrong. Then he goes on, he says, Yet... I am not hereby justified. (laughs) Glory to God. Then he says, but he that judges me or he that brings justice to my life is the Lord. So that would mean if we go back to Psalm 118, Jesus would pray and he would say, I know I've done nothing wrong. 
but I'm not going to have life on the other side of my judgment that I've done nothing wrong. That means we can analyze our lives in so many ways, be it in our relationship with our children, in our relationship with our spouses, in our relationship with work, all those kind of things where we want to justify ourselves because the natural thing in the human mind, and we're not going to get away from that, and it's never going to stop. Your mind will always try and find if you are guilty or not. Your mind will always want to know, have you done the right thing or have you not done the, done the right thing? You'll never get away from that until the day Jesus Christ comes. It's going to be part of your life. But what's going to set you free from that bringing torture and pain to your heart is when you realize that should you even have come, should your mind have run the race and put all the information together and you've come to the conclusion that you're innocent, that you will not be justified by it. Justify, and I want to read the word justify there to you. The word justify can also mean righteous. Uh, some places it's translated as righteous. But justification is further than righteousness. You can be righteous. Uh, let's say somebody is in jail and now... He's proven innocent. Okay, so now one can say he's righteous. He's in the right condition to be released. But I've seen with people when they, uh, when they go to jail, they come and they maybe appeal the judgment and then they are found innocent. It can still take a week to get them out of the jail because there's a process. It's not as if the judge said it and now they quickly run and in five minutes the guy is out of his cell and outside. No, now there's a process. It's going to take a week to get the guy out. So he's, he might be righteous, but justification in the true sense would mean to manifest or bring that which he has a right unto into manifestation. In other words, to release him from bondage. Now the word justified means to render, that is to show or exhibit or regard as just or innocent. So what Paul is saying, he says, it's a small thing for me to be judged by you because you, a human court, or you as people that are now fighting about who's Paul and who's Apollos, cannot render me or prove my innocence. Because Paul's definition of the proof of innocence or justification is to be raised from the grave and never to die or to share in the fullness of the life of God and have that starting to manifest even in his body. So what he's saying is, is I can go and make all the calculations. Am I innocent or am I not innocent? I can imagine Paul <laughs> when he was in jail. He, I think there was many times when he was thinking, man, I am here, it's not right. I'm not supposed to be here. And then after he's made all his calculations and he's come to the bottom line conclusion, he's truly innocent and his jailmates that are there with him in, in jail that are Christians saying, yeah, Paul, you know, that what they've done is not right. Ha, da, 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 da. And then after all of that, you're still stuck with yourself. 
what does it help to know that you're innocent? That's what Paul basically saying. Yes, it's, it's, we are supposed to be innocent. That's how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to, to have a good life. But never think that after you've lived your good life and you in your mind has come to the conclusion, and even if it's true, that you are not in the wrong, that you're going to pick life from that. There's no life there. Because if life was on the other side of right doing, then there's certain people that Jesus didn't have to die for in certain situations. That would mean that if I've done something right in this world, that the death and the resurrection of Jesus was not needed for the, in bringing joy to me in that area of my life, I'm okay. Or one could say, if people in a church picks you as the good preacher, then on the other side of that, you will be justified with true joy. Or if a human court comes and say, you are innocent. I mean, if a human court's innocence, declaration of innocence over you, could bring you joy or justification or manifest the life of God in you, why would God go through the whole thing in giving Jesus? Because then he could just influence judges to tell people they're innocent and then they can have access to the life of God. Now, with all of that said, I hope you can see how should this be a truth in your heart, how your mind will distance itself from the influences of this world and how you'll start to experience a life that only comes from God. Now, um, let me see if I've missed something there. I just want to read it. Okay, now it goes on. You can go and read verse 5. It says, uh, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. <laughs> so can you see that the only true judgment can be done when Jesus comes? And then it says here, Who will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Now we can f immediately feel guilty. Oh, was my motive right? Was my motive right? Does this talk about only the motive of the heart, our heart, where we did something right or wrong? Or does this include the motive of the heart of God? Obviously it includes the motive of the heart of God. Because you can go back to the previous verse here in chapter 2, when it talks about the wisdom that he's declaring. Remember, we are now in chapter 4. Paul didn't write in chapters. He, f he followed one thought. And this is what he says. We do, however, speak the message of wisdom amongst the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age that comes to nothing. So can you see that he talks about wisdom that's, got, that's eternal? The wisdom of this world is not eternal. We're speaking eternal wisdom. What is that? The resurrection of Christ and what effect that has on us. Let me put on my glasses. I was just quoting. I can't see anything. Right, verse 7. Now we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time begun. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for have they have known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what he's saying is, is there is a wisdom that has been hidden in God that is being preached. Where was that wisdom hidden? It is the heart of God. Now, when Jesus comes and judgment comes, what is in the heart of God, would be revealed in those who have believed upon him. 
just another quick nugget here. It says, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for have they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It doesn't mean that God has made them blind so they could crucify Jesus. That's not what Paul's argument is. His argument is simply that the people of this world didn't understand. That's why they crucified him. That is, that is all that he's, that he's truly trying, um, trying to say there. So, um, verse, if we conclude, we conclude with this. The love of God never fails. The wisdom of God always gives life. Knowing who you, in, who you are in Christ brings life. And if you are in a situation, I mean, we deal with many people. We, uh, we, we see people going through very difficult times, people losing their jobs, uh, people losing loved ones. Yesterday, we, somebody was at our house. While they were at our house, they got the telephone call. Uh, you need to come to the hospital. Your father's very ill. Next day, yesterday, we heard uh, this friend of ours' father passed away. The, be difficult times. Visit somebody as well. Facing very, very, very difficult times. There are people that suffer in this world. Paul suffered in this world. But the only place where there was life was not on the other side of the innocence that one would think of. I mean, a person, this is not the case with this specific lady, but let me use an example. Let's say a loved one passed away, like my mom when she passed away. Uh, I didn't expect that she was going to just get this massive aneurysm and just die. It happened. Then one can go and look at the whole thing and say, that was not fair, it shouldn't have happened, I wish I could have. And you can go through your whole argument, and at the end of the day, you could think, well, I felt that I should have called her, but I didn't call her the previous day. And you can go, and then you can reason out until you finished. And even if you, at the end of the day, can conclude and judge yourself in a way where you find nothing wrong with yourself, Paul says, I'm not justified thereby. That means that after I've proven my innocence to myself, I know there's no life on the other side of that. There's, even if a court of law has proven me innocent and they declare there's no life on the other side of that, even if I am picked out as the favorite preacher of all preachers and it's declared, I will never be justified or the innocence that I have in Christ will never be put on display by that. He says, wait until the Lord comes and that's when your innocence shall be put on display. Should we believe that? We separate ourselves from all of our efforts whereby we want to bring forth justification. And those efforts are the very things that hurts us most. I want to tell you, deeply loved by God, and me as the one that the Lord has, in this case, I believe, anointed to serve you with this message, finds pleasure in serving you with this, telling you this truth. And I want to say to you, open your heart, continue to keep your heart open. I know most of you uh, that are here, continue to keep your heart open for these truths. I want to encourage you guys, as I know you also do, because I get testimonies of uh, you phoning one another, encouraging one another. Continue to do that. I remind you, you remind me, we remind one another of this truth whereby we live and continue in the in the life of God glory to God 
Thank you so much that I could serve you today. Let us pray together. Father, I want to thank you for your life and your goodness. Thank you for this outstanding good news. Thank you, Lord, that I can sit here today and that I can know there's no justification on the other side of preaching good. Oh, that is such <laughs> a relief. There's no justification on the other side of how many people slot in. That is so good. There's no justification on the other side of any of my good works or the good works of any of these people and whatever they could fill in there, Lord, in their own prayer with you. But justification is only in the day of the Lord and by the Spirit or the life that you've given us. And thank you that we are reminded of that daily. Father, I thank you that I can declare everyone that has slotted into this message today, that has heard this message, I declare you are loved by God and His love endures forever. Amen and amen. Thank you so much that you have slotted in. Again, as always, those of you that want to remain and uh, on the into the Zoom meeting and you want to have fellowship with one another, we will keep this open and uh, divide you guys into the different Zoom chat rooms. So thank you so much. And then in this week to come, we will have daily devotionals again, uh, Monday to Friday. Know that you're deeply loved by God. And I'll see you again next Sunday. God bless.